0: of a sermon series leading up to Easter. We're talking about Jesus' present ministry at the right hand of God. Specifically, what we're doing is we're noticing the connections that are made in Scripture. So we're not making things up here, but there are connections made in Scripture between Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father and our discipleship. Why does it matter that Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God? Why does it matter in our everyday life? Last week, we talked about the implications for our praying. Today, we're going to talk about the implications for the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves day by day. And I want to acknowledge that we're probably in a lot of different places when it comes to this spiritual battle. Uh, if you just walked off the street today and said, hey, I think I'll go the, to church for the first time ever, this may be brand new, and it may be pretty weird, the things we're going to talk about. And so that's okay. Uh, others of you are very conversant, uh, both both theologically and practically, with the unseen spiritual battle. And so uh, a lot of things, maybe everything I'm talking about today uh, is, is, are things that you've thought about. But I acknowledge that just to say that, that you may leave today with more questions than you came with. As I've studied this, this material this, the past couple weeks, I have more questions than I used to have. And so uh, that's okay. The other thing I want to do at this point is lower your expectations for this message, okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, how do I say this? Um, this is a complex Topic, and there will be vast areas of spiritual warfare that I won't even touch, okay? And so uh, that's just the reality of it, and I'm okay with that. I hope you are as well. The things we are going to discuss today, however, are very foundational for the topic, and we're going to see how Jesus' enthronement at God's right hand can give us confidence in the unseen spiritual battle. So we're going to look at the we're going to take a whirlwind tour of the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at the New Testament. First, the Old Testament. The spiritual battle in the Old Testament it's basically the God of Israel, Yahweh, versus the gods of the nation and the the Hebrew the the Old Testament uses the word Elohim it's just a common word for god it refers to Yahweh as the creator god but also these lesser gods are called Elohim as well and the argument of the Old Testament is that there is one god who is superior to all the others. There is one God who is uncreated, who is sovereign, who is omni-everything, and that is Yahweh, the God of Israel. There are lesser gods who are created. They should not be worshipped. Only Yahweh should be worshipped. And the spiritual battle is evident in the first pages of the Bible. If you come to Genesis chapter 3, you find this evil spiritual being who's trying to convince the man and the woman that what God has said is not the best for them. And every temptation we face is some variation of that. What God is advocating there really isn't the best for you. They convinced the man and the woman to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate ate from that fruit and there's a punishment. They were banished from the garden. They were banished from God's direct Presence, But God didn't give up on humanity. Rather, at that point, he set in motion this plan to redeem humanity, to buy humanity back for himself, and then to punish uh, this spiritual being, as he's identified later as Satan and the serpent of old, to punish him and other lesser gods who have rebelled against Yahweh. Out of all the people on the earth, Yahweh chooses Abraham and his descendants as his possession. And so the Jewish people in the promised land, they belonged to God. And so much like the Garden of Eden, the promised land was the place where God would dwell, he would manifest his presence, and he alone would be worshiped and served in that place. The other nations had their gods, but, but Israel had Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of the heaven and the earth. And the vision that's given throughout the Old Testament is that one day, all the nations would worship Yahweh one day his glory his image his his uh, his presence would would uh, really his image would be spread to all the nations and so the conflicts between Israel and the surrounding nations they weren't merely physical they weren't merely military battles. They were that, uh, but they were also spiritual battles. And so think about the, the children of Israel in Egypt. When God uh, lifted up Moses and wanted to deliver the people, uh, he, he manifested his power through a series of miracles. Uh, they were plagues that, that were poured out on the nation of Egypt to try to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. But there were also gods of Egypt, and so Pharaoh called his magicians, and they had supernatural powers from the gods of Egypt, and they could mimic the the miracles of Yahweh to a point. But eventually, uh, their gods proved to be no match for the God of Israel. And when God was ready to deliver his people, this is the way he described it. This is in Exodus 12.12. God says this, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, this is the Passover night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And so the exodus from, from Egypt, it wasn't merely a judgment on Pharaoh and his army, it was also a judgment on the gods of Egypt, and when God took the people out of Egypt uh, through the through the Red Sea into the wilderness, He gave them these ten commands. Uh, they were the core of the law, and the very first one involved not worshiping other gods. Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh would not settle for being one of many gods that his people worshipped. Because of who he was, because of his supremacy, he deserved exclusive allegiance by his people. Look at the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So jealousy is often wrong, right? A lot of times it's it's bred of insecurity, uh, it's controlling, it's petty. But when you're in an exclusive relationship, protecting the exclusivity of that relationship, jealousy is an appropriate thing. Like. A marriage or like if you're in a covenant with the creator God. And so God is saying, he's saying here, I am jealous in the sense that I won't tolerate my people cheating on me. I'm committed to being your God. You need to be my people. And so the, the nations had their gods. There were actual spiritual beings who were given authority over the nations. That's taught in places like uh, 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 Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82. And so the nations had their gods, fine, but Israel had her god, the god uh, Yahweh. Eventually, God sent the people into, ba- into exile in Babylon because of spiritual adultery. They, they would not quit cheating on him. They wanted to worship the gods of the nation. God said, fine, you won't do it in the promised land. I'm going to send you to those nations. You can worship their gods in their lands. And so he sent them off into exile in Babylon. And, uh, and the exile in Babylon is described as a spiritual battle. It's a battle between Yahweh and the gods of Babylon. Who is more powerful, the God of the Jews or the gods of Babylon? And time and time again, against all odds, God proved that he, Yahweh proved that he was more powerful. He delivered Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He delivered them from lions, from the furnace, from the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. He proved that his boundaries were not geographical. He had no boundaries. God was powerful in all the nations of the earth. That was not the case with the gods of the nations. You left the boundaries, that God was was basically impotent, not the God of Israel. The Old Testament ends with the people back in the land and with the temple rebuilt, but they are largely at the mercy of the surrounding nations. It actually appeared like uh, the God of Israel was not really sovereign, that he was not really that strong. Uh, Many nations kind of had their way with Israel. But what nobody understood... Uh, Not the nations, not the gods of the nations, not the Jewish people. Nobody understood that Yahweh had a plan for winning the spiritual battle. Nobody saw it coming. And so with that background, we come to the New Testament, and the spiritual battle in the New Testament is between Jesus and the gods of the nation. You start reading the New Testament, it becomes very clear, very quickly, that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate. Jesus is, is, uh, is God in the flesh. And his basic message was, and we hear this kind of as religious language, but they would have heard this as a takeover. The basic message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, Jesus says, this takeover is about to begin. And the creator God, he is going to rule the entire earth. And if you actually believe that, the only sane response, the only rational response is to repent, turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and turn back to God and believe the gospel. And so in that way, you enter into God's kingdom. If God's establishing a kingdom, you don't want to be left out of it. And so you repent and believe the gospel. What's fascinating in in the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that almost nobody, I say almost, almost nobody understood Jesus' true identity. And so the Jewish authorities, they definitely didn't believe Jesus', who, Jesus identity. They had no clue. Uh, the crowds didn't understand Jesus' identity. They thought he was just a kind of a cash cow. He was kind of a miracle worker. There's a lot for me in this. Even his closest disciples didn't understand his true identity. But you know who understood? You know who got it? The demons. When they encountered Jesus, they knew exactly who he was. In Matthew 8, for example... Uh, and again, if you've never heard any of this, this is going to sound really weird, but these, these, these unseen spiritual beings inhabit humans, and they sometimes speak through humans. And so in Matthew 8, the, the words of these demons who inhabited two men, they're recorded. And this is what they cried out. This is Matthew 8, 29. And they cried out saying, they're talking to Jesus, what business do we have with each other, son of God? They called Jesus, son of God. And then they said, have you come here to torment us before the time? And so they understood a couple very important things. Number one, Jesus is the unique, uncreated son of God. Number two, they understood that there would come a day in the future when he would torment them. Basically, he would judge them. They're saying, it's a little early for that, isn't it? We know it's coming, but, but you, you're, you're going to do this before the time? And so they knew who Jesus was. Why? Because they dwelt in the unseen spiritual realm with him. They knew exactly who he was, and they were shocked that now uh, the, the Jesus, the Son of God, had been made a little lower than the angels. He showed up as a human, okay? And so they knew exactly who he was. What they did not know is that God's plan for defeating them was Jesus' crucifixion. They had no clue. They thought if we can just crucify Jesus, we will defeat him. They had no idea that that would be their defeat. And so you go to, and we're covering a lot of territory here, okay? So just hold on. And we'll get to the Jesus present ministry. But in 1 in, uh, Corinthians 2, Paul wrote about the wisdom of the gospel. And this is what he writes in verse 8. He says, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, the rulers of this age, some people understand that to mean the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, but I've become convinced, and I I, I side with those who, who would say, no, these rulers of this age, these are these unseen spiritual beings, these are the gods of the nations that opposed Uh, Yahweh. Uh, Satan is called the ruler or the God of this world. And if that understanding is correct, and I think it is, Paul is saying that the powers of darkness would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they understood what it would accomplish. As we're going to see in a few minutes, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the enthronement of Jesus at God's right hand, that has defeated the powers of darkness if they understood that, Satan would not have entered uh, Judas so that he would betray, betray him to be crucified. And so we're going to see that that uh, Jesus' enthronement is their downfall. So that's the context of the spiritual battle in the New Testament. I want us to notice three foundational things about that, that battle as it's revealed in the New Testament. And I hope you hear this as good news. The first is this, is that making disciples of all the nations, that is God's plan for winning the spiritual battle. That is his plan for winning the spiritual battle. In Matthew 28, the risen Christ said this to his followers. And Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Very significant. Jesus said, both in the heavenly realm and in the earthly realm, the the visible physical realm, I have all authority. And based on that authority, he gives this command, verse 19, go therefore, in light of the fact that I have authority in the heavenly and the earthly realms, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so a disciple is a follower. It's an apprentice of Jesus. And you're baptized. That's the way you go public. And you say, I'm all in when it comes to the triune God. And then he says, the third aspect is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the one who has all authority is with his followers. Always until the end of the age. And so the, that's very different from the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, the, the, if you wanted to know about Yahweh, you came to Israel. The Queen of Sheba, for example, she came to, uh, to Solomon when he was the king, and she left amazed at the God of Israel. The wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of his God, she went away amazed. It's different in the new covenant. The, the message isn't let people come to you. No, the message is you go. Now you go to all the nations. To, the, the word there is ethne. It's, you go to every ethnic grouping on earth. You're to go to, to every grouping of people on the earth. Make disciples. That means you share Christ with them. People are converted. They become apprenticed to Jesus. You baptize them. And then you teach them to obey everything Christ has commanded. And so this is a tall order, right? But we are to share Christ in word and deed so that Jesus has disciples in every grouping of people on the earth. And so through Christ, the blessing of Abraham is fulfilled. All the families of the earth are blessed. People from every tribe, tongue, nation are rescued from the domain of darkness, and they are now in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's glorious Son. And that's exactly what we read about in the New Testament. You find people turning from the gods of the nations, to Yahweh, to to Jesus. And so in Acts 14, for example, read the whole chapter when you get the chance. It's really quite humorous. But uh, Paul and Barnabas are in this, this city called Lystra, and there's a man who's lame from birth. He had never walked, and Paul healed him. And after, after this man got up and began walking, the people of Lystra, they assumed, our gods are responsible for this. Our gods have healed this man. And so they called uh, Barnabas Zeus, and they Paul, called Paul uh, Hermes. He was the messenger god. Paul was the one that talked, so you must be Hermes. The priest of Zeus came, he was bringing these animals, they're going to make sacrifices to Paul. And it says that Paul and Barnabas, when they found out what they were doing, they tore their clothes. And this is what they said this is in Acts 14, beginning in verse 15. And saying, they were saying, Man, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things, these worthless things, to a living God, the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You know where he quoted from? The Ten Commandments, Exodus 21. This is the creator God. This is Yahweh, the one who will have no other gods before him. And so he's saying, you don't have to worship these lesser gods. Through Jesus, you can worship and serve the creator God. And so on a big picture level, this is the way God is going to win the spiritual battle. He's going to send his people to, to take his glory, to take the good news of the gospel to every grouping of people on the earth. I love the way Mike Heiser says it. He says, as the kingdom of God grows, the kingdom of darkness shrinks and loses ground. This past week, I talked, to a, I talked to a guy who recently came to Christ like a month ago. And what he described is exactly this. He came, went, when he put his faith in Christ, he went from the kingdom of darkness to the domain of light. And so the, the darkness receded and the kingdom of God was expanded. That's how God wins the spiritual battle. And he understands that there's this this ongoing spiritual battle, but in an ultimate sense, he is now part of the kingdom. The kingdom is expanding. That's the basic basic way that God is, is winning the battle. Second, making disciples of all the nations is possible because of Jesus' enthronement at God's right hand. We finally come to the connection between Jesus' present ministry and the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. In Ephesians 1, Paul's telling the Ephesians all these things he's been praying for them. And in verse 19, he writes this, all these things, hope, power, all these things are in accordance with the working of the strength of God's might which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so, Wonder of wonders. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, after he was crucified and buried, he was raised from the dead, and then he was exalted to God's right hand, back to this place of supremacy, far above all these powers and these spiritual beings. And now, every single one of them, they still have power, they still have a degree of authority, they still rule in some ways, but every single one of them is looking up at Jesus. He is seated far above them. Okay, that's significant for the spiritual battle. We say, "Good for Jesus." What about us? Keep reading in Ephesians. You come to chapter two. Paul explains the implications for us. Speaking of believers, Paul writes, "But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when you were dead in your tra- dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ." By grace, you have been saved. It's purely a gift. And then in verse 6, he makes this staggering statement. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing richness of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so you find this principle throughout Paul's writings, whatever happened, if you're in Christ, whatever happened to Jesus happens to you. So if you were in Christ, you have died with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, you have been raised to newness of life, and you have been raised up and you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places far above all these evil spiritual beings that want to thwart what God is doing in your life. That means that you and I engage the spiritual battle from a place of confidence and a place of victory. We come to Ephesians 6, and it ties this all together. And we see this. This is the third thing. We engage the spiritual battle, we make disciples, through the core habits of discipleship. And then Paul mentions truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, finally, uh, this is the last thing I want to talk about. And I would say that too. This is the last thing I want to talk about. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So this is a command. This is something you and I have to do. Nobody can do this for you. Uh, your parents can't put on the armor of God for you. Uh, Faithy Free can't put on the armor of God for you. You have to put on the armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one, uh, the schemes of the devil. And the word scheme means it's a deception. It's a, it's a trickery uh, as opposed to an obvious attack. And Scripture suggests that, that Satan is an intelligent, oh, he's so intelligent. He's got generations and generations, eons of wisdom stored up from experience. He's an intelligent, crafty, evil, spiritual being who is dreaming up ways that he can trip us, trip us up. Okay? And so, but if we put on the full armor of God not just part of it, but the full armor of God, we can stand firm against these schemes. It means we, doesn't, we don't have to be blindsided at every turn. The Holy Spirit can give us discernment. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 actually wrote, We are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. And so Paul had some, some wisdom. In that case, he was talking about uh, unforgiveness. That's one of Satan's schemes. In Ephesians 4, another one of his schemes is, uh, is anger. Don't let the sun go down on your, your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. And so there are these schemes, and if you think about it for just a while, uh, if you have honest, honest conversation with other people about the issues in your life, you can probably identify some schemes, some, some uh, predictable ways that, that he tries to trip you up and keep you from doing the will of God. Then in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You and I have conflicts with flesh and blood people. There are people that hate God. There are people that hate the church. Uh, so we have those kind of conflicts. We have conflicts in our own midst, okay? We, we, there's a lot about relationships in the Bible. But ultimately, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and see if this sounds familiar, remember what we already know, but we have conflict against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. If we didn't already know that Christ has been seated far above all these powers and in Christ we have been raised up and seated with him, we would freak out. We would, we would have no hope in this battle. But we, we, we approach this battle from a place of, of power, from a place of victory, a place of confidence. And so uh, our real struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these unseen powers. And so as we interact with people, as we walk through the physical world, we need to be mindful that there are intelligent, crafty, spiritual beings who who are scheming up ways to distract and demoralize us. If we don't understand that, we'll be blindsided at every turn. Now, here's the question. So how do we engage that battle? How do we engage that battle? Uh, Do we go into some spiritual warfare mode that's totally different from anything else we do? Well, actually, the good news is no. Uh, What Paul describes here is the core habits of discipleship are effective in the spiritual realm. I will say there are times when we need to be more direct and more aggressive. You find Jesus did this. Acts 16, Paul did this. He cast out a demon from a, a, a little girl who was, was being tormented. And so there are times when we have a, we have a more intense, direct, uh, confrontational type of spiritual battle. But what, if you keep reading in Ephesians 6... Uh, The everyday way that we engage the spiritual battle is through the core practices of discipleship. And this is what's described throughout the Bible. You saturate your mind with the truth, with the Word of God. You pray, you practice righteousness, you understand the gospel, you live by faith. Let's consider one example, uh, and uh, just, just as an illustration. In verse 15, Paul mentions this, and he's describing like a Roman soldier, and he's saying, just like he puts on his, 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 uh, his armor, you put on these things. He says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So you have to prepare. You don't go into a battle without wearing shoes. You also have to prepare and and put on your feet. You shod with the the gospel of peace. And so understood correctly, the gospel brings peace in at least a couple of different ways. First of all, the gospel brings peace to our own lives. If you're a believer, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. The enemy of your souls will whisper in your ears, uh, you are worthless, You think your prayers do something, but you're just talking to the air. Uh, You think you're going to do great things for God, but you might as well give up now because you are worthless. You can't do anything. And so you, you hear these lies, but then you preach the gospel to yourself, and you say, no, actually, I am just as alive to God as Jesus himself. Actually, the truth of the gospel is that I've been raised up and seated with him and I have a great high priest at the right hand of God. And so I can come boldly before the throne of grace and God will give me grace and mercy exactly when I need it. And so the gospel gives us peace. But if we're prepared, we can share the gospel. Again, it's good news. We can share this good news with other people, and it will bring them peace. They can have peace with God. They can have peace in their souls. And so this week, if if you are mindful, if your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, you will likely recognize opportunities to share your story and to say, hey, listen to what God has done in my life. I just have to tell you, and this is how you too can experience peace with God. Jesus died on the cross. He paid for your sins, so you don't have to pay for your sins. And God can use you to bring peace to other people. And so that's just an example of how this, this, uh, the, these core disciplines of discipleship are effective in the spiritual realm. <clears throat> So I've, I've just said a lot of words. I've talked about a lot of different topics. But the thing I want you to, to leave here with and just take away uh, from this time is, is this truth, that because Christ is enthroned at God's right hand, far above every spiritual being, and because if you're in Christ, you are enthroned there also, you approach the spiritual battle from a place of confidence and a place of victory. This is our birthright. This isn't something we just try to pull out. This is our birthright in Christ Jesus, this this victory in the spiritual battle. Heavenly Father, we pray for ourselves this week. We pray, God, that we might be mindful that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who is seated at your right hand far above all these, these spiritual powers that want to harass, want to distract us from your will. We pray, God, that we would put on the full armor of God, and we'd do so gladly, do so confidently. We pray you'd give us wisdom and discernment in these things. God, thank you that we don't have to understand it all. We mainly need to fix our eyes on Jesus, who he is, and the power he offers us. And so, God, we pray this would be a week where we walk with you, and we experience your protection, your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.